As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White, this time phoning in from Austria, I believe. How are you, dad? Yep, phoning in from Austria and with a heavy cold. So, uh, you know, it's not ideal circumstances, but I'm here and it's good to be good to be speaking, Tim. Yep, I'm also slightly uh, recovering from illness, so you might notice <laughs> yeah, see, a slight nasal tone in my voice as well. So um, bear with us as we struggle so, through. So Tim is suffering from one of the great delights of parenthood. <laughs> well, Which catching is... your children's illnesses. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and somehow the grown-ups seem to get it worse than the little ones, but um not sure how that works. Um, but anyway, enough about our own travails. Uh, today we are um, kind of picking up a series that we began la- last month, or maybe even longer, I can't quite recall, which was looking at the kind of grand narrative of scripture, the kind of Christian story uh, through four, a kind of lens that says it divides it into four episodes, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and, and new creation. Um, and last time we covered the first of those creation, didn't we? Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you haven't listened to that episode, we would uh, recommend it. But in 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 brief, we were we were trying to argue that um, the understanding of 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 the wonder and the goodness and the joy, which is fundamentally part of the creation, is, is such an important message, which which unfortunately is often lost particularly uh, in christian circles uh, and and i find that one of the great paradoxes but so the idea of, of, of the goodness of of what god has made is a fundamental christian truth which we need to we we never move beyond it and and we said didn't we that even even in uh, the picture of the uh, the throne room in uh, in heaven um, that the creation is being celebrated there in, in the very uh, presence of God on into eternity. That's right. And and to quickly explain for people who might be kind of puzzled why we're here, uh, stepping away from our more usual fare. I think the thinking is, is that this kind of theological framework that we're expounding, it lies behind how we approach a lot of the more kind of grounded down to earth examples, you know, whether that might be artificial intelligence or embryo research or transgender ideology. Um, You know, we can't think clearly as Christians about some of these incredibly new and um, uh, exciting or concerning developments in science technology 
if we don't have a, a kind of decent theological framework in, of, of creation, of humanity, of who God is, about where we're going as a species, as a cosmos. Um, so this is a kind of effort to to explain um, and make the case for for the kind of theological foundation that we then, uh, the lens with which we try and approach some of these more um, novel ideas. Yeah, and so today we're, we're looking at the, at the nature of evil uh, because this is the second... Of the of the great foundations uh, of of the biblical narrative, and and of course this is a such a profound issue uh, in today's world, we, and and just listening to the news, you know, at the time we're recording this, uh, the, the whole the Middle East is a, is alight with uh, with violence and uh, because of uh, warfare between uh, Israel and Hamas. In Palestine, there are demonstrations around the world. Uh, there is the Ukraine conflict still going on uh, and terrible bloodshed and suffering there. And and in the tech world, you know, there is huge concern about the risks of new technology, uh, the way that um, uh, unexpected evil seems to emerge out of and the potential for evil in, in the technology. So, so evil is a really important concept in our world and, and sometimes it can feel overwhelming that's right i mean it just, it just reminded me just there that this very week as we record the um the uk prime minister rishi sunak is kind of convening an international summit here in, in the uk about artificial intelligence and and trying to get countries to come together to kind of agree some guardrails and some frameworks because there's as you say real concern that the the tra- trajectory we've started down in developing some of these software tools could in 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, un- unleash quite significant problems uh, for us as a, as a society, as a species. So this is something that the wider world is grappling with. But w- how do we think evil is understood in, in secular society? What is their kind of intellectual uh, approach to that? Well, I find it very interesting that, you know, reading a lot about the tech world and uh, the writings of, of- of technologists, it's very interesting to me that it seems that within an entirely materialistic and physicalist uh, worldview, which is really the dominant worldview in the tech world, evil doesn't really compute. It, it, it it's a deep mystery because you know technologists they can understand programming mistakes and programming errors. They can understand that you know, a computer might malfunction. They can understand random disasters, you know, like earthquakes and uh, uh, disasters like that. But the idea of personal malevolence, the idea that that people might do evil things without any rationale um, is, is something it just doesn't compute. I mean, why why would people do that? And yet what we observe repeatedly is that evil seems to emerge even when intentions are good so you know i think it's pretty clear that many of the people leading technology in silicon valley genuinely want to do good for humankind when mark zuckerberg originally had an idea that you know he basically says i want to connect every human being on the planet i think he genuinely said what could possibly go wrong i mean what a wonderful idea i remember him saying early on that this would be a 
great for world peace because you know it would allow people to communicate accurately and honestly and that, of course peace would emerge uh, it's just tragically it seems that has not been the reality i mean what's your experience of social media <laughs> well exactly yeah something i'm trying to uh, extricate myself from at the moment because it is particularly now i mean you know when you scroll through your social media feeds at a time of um kind of fevered crisis as we have at the moment with with what's going on in israel and and gaza it's just a kind of morass of uh bad faith arguments and immorality and willful blindness and shouting and anger and and that's just you know the opinions let alone some of the genuinely awful things that have come out of out of the internet in 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 my adult lifetime you know mass shooters you get radicalized on internet forums or you know genocide gets uh, facilitated by facebook groups in myanmar and anti-christian persecution in india and you know it's clear that actually a lot of our technology despite being established with genuinely quite benign intent has had the effect of kind of maximizing aggregating human destructiveness and human sinfulness we would call it in ways that are hard, that were hard to predict, or at least they thought the, the programmers would have found it hard to predict. That's right. And so it's then interesting to see that as technologists and, and thinkers generally have tried to get their heads around why this is all going on, they've then come up with this concept of what they call the bad actor. In other words, the idea is that most human beings are like us. They're, they're nice, they're, they're liberal, they, they want nice things to happen, they don't wish harm to anybody. But then there's just a few people, and these are the bad actors, and they're people like, these are willfully uh, damaging, people like cyber criminals, like uh, people deliberately using disinformation and so on. And so provided we can identify bad actors and, and somehow restrain them, then everything's going to be fine. And I think that have stumbled into a kind of moral framework which actually aligns with how the general population, at least in kind of Western secular society, thinks about evil, which is that most human beings are basically good. Sure, we occasionally, you know, tell lies and do wrong things, but we're basically good. But there is a small minority of people who are evil, who are bad, who are irredeemable. And they are the people who, you know, commit murders and are terrorists and, you know, uh, are awful people and the only really thing to do about those people is to avoid them where you can and when you find them to lock them away in prison and that's the kind of I think the kind of moral framework that falls into it and what is fascinating is how that so often it fails as a kind of explanatory framework for 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 how people act because we keep stumbling up against the idea that there is a person who has so much evidence in their life of doing good things who then did a really really terrible thing and then we struggle because we're like, they don't seem to fit into either of the two categories that we had established for, for how human beings work. So one of the fascinating things is that when human beings are meeting face to face, it's clear that there's this kind of constant filtering restraint that goes on. I may, I may think of something, I might feel frustrated by something that the person has said, but the very, our physical presence restrains me from lashing out or from, you know, it's constantly limiting um, my, uh, my conversation, my, and particularly the negative emotions I might express. Whereas 
once you're in a vit- virtual world, and particularly if you're if it's not real time, I, I'm responding asynchronously out of real time to a comment that someone else has made. It seems that all those natural restraints are removed, and therefore I'm much more pr- prepared to say really frightful, horrendous, damaging, aggressive things. Um, and, and, and this seems to be something about my humanity, uh, but it's a, quite an unexpected thing, I think, again, from a, from a kind of secular, liberal perspective. I mean, why do people say so, some unpleasant things to each other? Hmm. And, and I think this, this is the fundamental issue here is that the kind of slightly naive approach of, you know, there are a few bad actors and everyone else is basically good and does basically good things all the time, just completely fails to grapple with with how systemic evil is in our lived experience and how it's not just the case that bad things in the world come out of a few bad people doing them, but it's that, as you say, when you when human beings gather together in different ways and different forums, they find themselves almost unconsciously uh, hurting each other and damaging the world around them. Um even with even without any genuine malevolent or kind of ill ill intent, and that is something that I think the secular moral framework really struggles to know how to understand that kind of the pervasive systemic you know way that 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 evil and suffering seems to almost kind of be unavoidable despite a whole bunch of good people trying to do fundamentally good things that's right so then as as kind of as as physicalist uh, secular people try to address this. There are there are two dominant explanations. Number one, it must be something about our evolution, and it must be something about the fact that we evolved on the African savanna. Uh, in a, and people often recreate this wonderful kind of scenario of a small group of hunter gatherers and where everything is rosy and beautiful. Uh, and unfortunately, now we evolved with with these. Uh, prehistoric uh, reactions and mindsets and now we find ourselves in this technological world that it's the mismatch between our prehistoric brains and our modern tech uh, lifestyles that's the problem or secondly people say well it must be education it must be the fact that you know people start off good and then they get screwed up by their parents <laughs> and and by the whole educational socialization and if only you could fix the education then we'll solve the problem. Hmm. And so how do we think the Christian perspective on evil, on suffering, is different to to the, the secular worldview we've been unpacking? And, and how does it offer a better explanatory kind of framework for thinking about evil? Well, and what's so interesting is that, is that the Christian worldview takes evil very, very seriously. And actually, it goes back even into the pre-Christian Hebraic, um, the Old Testament world, uh, which for thousands of years before Christ was wrestling with the problem of evil uh, and the nature of evil, the reality of evil, the consequences of evil. Uh, So right back in the very beginning chapters of Genesis, we have um, this very profound and interesting and, and countercultural view of, of, of evil, which which is so much more, I think, 
subtle and nuanced compared with this quite crude uh, mm. physicalist understanding of, of where evil comes from. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously people will be very familiar, I'm sure, with the Genesis 3 story, often known as the fall. You know, the serpent comes and whispers things into the ears of Adam and Eve, questioning God's command about not eating from the tree. And uh, and the serpent says, you know, if you do eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve takes some and then gives it to Adam. Both of them, their eyes are opened. They they they, they realize they're naked. They hide from God. Um uh, uh they blame each other or the serpent uh, and god ultimately curses them and expels them expels them from the garden and places that the angel with the flaming sword to, to stop them from getting back you know what what is the what is the view of evil and suffering do you think communicated by that complicated and significant story i mean it's a very rich profound and uh narrative which you know, commentators and theologians have have wrestled with for uh, centuries, for millennia. Um, but I think there are some fundamental uh, truths here, and it it is the idea that evil is already mysteriously, you know, it's already present in the cosmos. So. God creates this beautiful world. It's all wonderful. He says it's very good. He's got these wonderful people made in his image. And then there's a voice. There's a voice in the garden. And the origin of that voice is never explained. But there's a voice. And that voice is a a personal voice of utter malevolence. It's a voice that is subtle, that is um, manipulative, uh, and, but it's a voice that is utterly hostile to everything that God intends. And, and the very first words are, did God really say? It's, it's, it's questioning, it's challenging, it's asking. Um, and so... I, I think this passage, first of all, just recognizes that that evil is far more complex and mysterious than this simplistic view of of uh, an evolutionary basis. But it seems but to be second... saying that that evil is both within and without at the same time. You know, it's that the 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 serpent, separate from Adam and Eve, but yet also possibly created by God, unclear, um, is the kind of instigator of this destructive choice they make and yet also it is ultimately adam and eve's decision to disobey god and to eat the forbidden fruit that causes all these ripple effects and so it seems to me not a theologian to be saying that that the the origins of evil both lie without us and within us in some complex mixed up way well yes and that that in some way the human choice human desire human willfulness is is part of the mix and as you say there is uh, an external evil within uh, a temptation but there is the human desire the human fall um and in in the in the language of 
of of Genesis, it appears that it's because of this human desire for evil that that it, the entire cosmos is then somehow uh, contaminated, and every aspect of the cosmos is now, although it was created good, it is now in some way contaminated. It is some way affected by evil, and um, and again, this is never fully explained. This is this is ultimately mysterious. And yet the consequences uh, ripple out uh, from the Garden of Eden throughout uh, the entire cosmos. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And this is another clear, clear bit of kind of clear blue water, as it were, between the secular understanding of evil and, and the Christian one, which is that in a secular world, I think tacitly is this idea that fundamentally only people are bad, whereas actually Christianity teaches that because of the bad choices that human beings have made in choosing to disobey God, that actually, as you say, that that ripples out across the entire created order and so now badness suffering evil is interwoven with created creation itself and 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 things that were created good now produce bad bad fruit and bad things happen that aren't simply the consequence of human decisions but actually just the world becomes contaminated as well yes and and you know we have to acknowledge that this is contested ground uh, amongst Christian theologians. And uh, there's a very interesting debate, which I'd like to come back to in a future podcast about understanding uh, what is sometimes called natural evil. Uh, you know, is it true to say that uh, the, the natural world is somehow contaminated or is evil ultimately confined to, to, to human beings? Uh, so, so, so this is contested, but nonetheless, I think the biblical picture paints, the biblical narrative paints a picture of the entire cosmos as broken in some way, as as uh, not ultimately reflecting 
the original creation order. And um, but it's brokenness. The, the creation order is still there. It's it's not that it's lost completely. It's not it's not disintegrated into chaos. There is still a creation order. There is still a beauty, but it is a broken beauty. It is a it, it is a flawed masterpiece. Hmm. And this is some this idea is sometimes being described by theologians as total depravity, which is not that. Um, everything that we do and everything is depraved, but that the the corruption of sin um, has not left anything unscathed, and that all all of our thought processes and our actions and our words and the world around us is all marred and affected and corrupted in in small and bigger ways by by sin. That nothing has been left untouched, and that's very. I think that's probably controversial or, or even offensive to kind of secular people. Absolutely. I think it's at this point that most secular philosophers and and actually, uh, yeah, many, uh, most, many other people will just throw up their hands in horror and say that at that point, you've lost me. This is simply unacceptable. I cannot accept this understanding of evil. I retain the view that we are fundamentally good. Yeah, we have our little problems. But this idea that uh, that everything I do is contaminated by evil, that evil contaminates every aspect of the creation, I just can't go there. This is this is unacceptable. This is offensive, uh, and I will reject Christianity as a result. And why? What is driving that? Do you think that's because people fundamentally don't like the idea that they are, you know? broken like a stick of brighton rock you snap them in half and 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 a stripe of 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 suffering of evil of brokenness runs all the way through the middle of them that they just find that personally upsetting that doesn't conceit kind of cohere with their the idea of themselves they have well i i suppose one of the great fears is if i really believe that then the only possible route is despair the, you know if if that is really the case that all humanity is curdled by some terrible flaw, um, then there is no hope. There is no, I mean, you. the only possible route is of, of utter despair, cynicism. Um, and, and I don't want to live like that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to go there. It's just too, too horrible to look into that abyss. And therefore... I will tell myself it can't be right. It can't be true. Um, you know, I'm fundamentally a good person. You're fundamentally a good person. Human beings are fundamentally good and we can make a better world. Hmm. And this, I think, it comes down to the fact that all sin is ultimately kind of self-deceptive. You know, Satan is the father of lies and 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 you see that there in Genesis 3. You know, it wasn't that he egged on Adam and Eve and said, go on. Why didn't you just indulge the evil part of yourself, the disobedient part of yourself, the wicked part of yourself? No, he flattered them with lies and said, actually, he he indulged their, their desire to deceive themselves and say, actually, by doing something they knew was wrong, that God had told them not to do, they were actually doing a good thing. And I think that's fundamentally true of all of us, that that we 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 all really fundamentally believe that we are we're doing good stuff and we're making good choices uh and and few of us i think really are willing to kind of 
pierce that bubble of self-deception and, and see ourselves as we really are. Yes, and and it is. I mean, it's it's a hard, it's a hard saying, isn't it? And and it, you could see this in when in Jesus's ministry as well in the Gospels, that as long as he was saying nice things about <laughs> um, about God and so on as a father, and I've come to bring you know peace and and so on, uh, that was fine. But when he when he talked about the reality of evil, and um, people reacted against that this was this this was uh, this was a hard saying so so i i think we have to acknowledge that the, this is one of those crux points um where as christianity as a, as a as a, a way of understanding the world really uh it it engages in a in a difficult way with reality and yet i think that intuitively Many people, as they listen to the, the the news, they watch on their screens, they see their social media feeds. Actually, this resonates, doesn't it? This is this has got this takes evil seriously. Mm. Another another lens of looking at this is is sometimes through the doctrine that's sometimes called original sin. Um, you know, which is the idea that that um, uh, Christianity teaches that you know human beings aren't born perfect and innocent, and then at some point kind of acquire their brokenness but actually that brokenness is baked in from the start and again this is hugely offensive I think often you know a lot of a lot of moderns would say this is some of the the, the most pernicious uh, teaching of Christianity that you know even these beautiful little babies are are marred by sinfulness and yet at the same time as every parent can testify you know we see in our children from as soon as they can walk and think and talk that they do decide and act and do do things that are destructive to themselves and to others that hurt themselves and hurt others that don't really seem to make any sense they just they keep choosing bad things um and so we kind of intuitively know it and yet we also react and reject and 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 say no I can't I can't I can't deal with that as an idea that's right and uh, I mean every parent discovers this doesn't they that this this wonderful little bundle that is so so innocent and so precious and so wonderful, and then somewhere this this little spirit inside um, mm. starts to want to assert itself and to fight back and to and to say no, and I don't want, and it's not fair, and I'm not going to do that. And so again, you say, well, is this an evolutionary phenomenon? Is this um, is this bad upbringing or is there something deeper and again i'm just reminded of of what jesus said you know to the pharisees who spent their whole time worrying about external purity and he says what corrupts a person is not what they comes into them it's what comes out of their heart he said out of the human heart comes all kinds of evil and and that's what you see in a young child that's what you see on social media and that's why the heart of the gospel is that the problem lies with the human heart, not with the world around us. The problem to to the brokenness and the the suffering of the world around us lies inside us, and therefore the only solution is a heart transplant, a spiritual heart transplant, which is what Jesus offers us, um, you know, when we're born again. Um, and and I guess that leads us to this idea that actually the fall and the Christian conception of sin, suffering, and evil is actually quite a unique contribution, a unique idea, a narrative 
that we can offer a wider world grappling confused and scrambling about trying to find a way to explain the brokenness it sees around it yes um and a very interesting voice in this is is john gray who is a secular philosopher um based in london who is not at all a um a a believer in god um in in or or a christian believer uh and he he attacks the idea of of christianity the whole structure of christianity but he's very interesting because he says modern liberal humanism is basically a christian heresy it's taken the idea that human beings are special on a wonderful but has just removed all the metaphysical underpinnings and interestingly gray goes on to say and for this reason liberal humanism is much more dangerous than christianity he says christianity is dangerous enough as an idea but at least christianity balances the idea of the specialness of humanity with the recognition about of evil he says the problem with liberal humanism is that it just takes the specialness of human humanity but it has no understanding it has no concept of the fall and he says that makes liberal humanism much more dangerous because of its lack of reality hmm and i think we can see that as we were discussing earlier on with with kind of you know the the monuments to liberal secular naturalist humanism that we've built in the 21st century our um our internet culture our societies they are um completely kind of struggling to deal with with the reality of evil is this kind of emergent property that seeps out of everything we touch despite our best intentions um and that actually we do need a uh and you can see that even in the small area of like you know content moderation on on social media platforms all the way up to much bigger problems that everyone is 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 almost looking for a different way a better way of um explaining evil and managing evil and restraining evil um, but but fundamentally it need, it's there, there needs to be a intellectual a philosophical a theological re- reframing of the problem before you can then get to the right policy prescription at the end yes yeah, so, so the fascinating idea is that what technology does particularly this new information technology social media chat gbt all these things they basically amplify what is going on in our human hearts and minds when we when we're as untechnologically enhanced human beings, a lot of this is just hidden inside us, inside our our minds, and it's limited to our uh, finite embodiment. But this technology is a massive amplifier of 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 what is hidden, of what is going on in inside us. And as it amplifies this in extraordinary ways, often what we see is not a very pretty sight. Uh, yes, there are lots of very positive things. I mean, again, one doesn't want to fall into this completely negative perspective. Of course, uh, you know, it amplifies good things. It amplifies science. It amplifies, you know, funny cat videos. It amplifies, you know, you name it, you know, uh, lots of very positive things. But it also amplifies, uh, to many people's surprise, the, the level of, of, of hatred of of the vicious uh, thoughts and destructive thoughts that are inside ordinary human beings' hearts. 
and I guess the Christian response is is to be unsurprised by that because Christ, um, the Christian story says, well, if you just simply put rocket fuel underneath the unchanged human nature, you're going to get fireworks, but in both bad and good ones, you're going to, if you, if you, if, if you, if you, if you, if you um, massively amplify and, you know, take away some of the physical limits and the finitude that was baked into us as human beings. Yeah. You're going to get some fantastic stuff, but yes, you're going to get some lots of awful stuff. And that's why I guess the Christian answer is that human beings uh, do best we flourish when we are restrained to an extent when we live within the guardrails set by our god our creator who understands better than us our propensities and our capacities for evil and i guess a great way of explaining that idea would be the story in genesis shortly after genesis 3 of the tower of babel yes yeah, so, so the tower of babel again you know Actually, I haven't thought about this before, but you could say this is an example of the amplification of how technology amplifies human evil. So you've got in in the narrative, you've got individual human evil. You've got Cain who uh, who who's murders his own brother, you know, at, at an individual level. But in Genesis chapter 11, you get the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the sort of when human beings come together. And they say, let us make a tower. And it's a kind of, it's clearly a sort of parody of what God himself, the triune God said when he said, let us make human beings in our image. Uh, but now human, human beings are saying, we've got the technology and we are going to make a tower and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to uh, disobey the God who told us to, spread out across the earth instead we're going to come down we're going to build a city and we're going to make a name to ourselves and and now and god sees says now they're of one language and of one purpose and there is nothing that they wish to do will be impossible for them there is no limit to what they can achieve and then god's in the story steps in and confuses the languages uh, so so again the tower of babel i think has a has a kind of new resonance uh, in in this current age, because it's something about collective human uh, power uh, that that has unexpected consequences. Hmm. And there's a, a kind of riposte to the hyper liberal libertarian spirit that says, you know, human beings should accept no limitations and no one can can constrain me. And actually, the Christian message is actually we do best, we thrive when we do live within the good restraints and the good limits set by God. Um, and, and you see that in Genesis three, when God expels Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve from the garden, he then bars their entry with the angel, with the flaming sword, uh, not just because, you know, he's a, <coughs> a spoil sport, but because God knew that actually if these now broken and sinful human beings were to regain in, back, entry back into the perfect garden and, start eating from the fruit of the other tree you know who the, the consequences would be catastrophic and so it's out of god's love as our father that he sets these rules and guardrails and the kind of the story of scripture and i think to this day is if humans bucking against the rules and the good the good limits set by god but actually the, the a, a, a faithfully christian response is that actually an untrammeled society which doesn't constrain humans is only going to tend towards towards more evil and more suffering so we do need some kind of constraint as long as they're the right kind of godly constraints yeah and it's, it's fascinating you know within this story of the garden 
you know, the, the, the imagery is of a garden which is just resplendent with fruit, with, with every possible um, kind of, um, of fruit. Uh, and God says, you can eat of any single tree. It's all for you. If you want mangoes, you want mangoes, you want mashing fruit, you want apples. You know, it's all, you know, it's all up for you. You choose. I'm not going to tell you what, what to eat. You know, enjoy it all. Uh, but there's just one tree, just one tree that you shouldn't eat from. And, uh, and of course, the, the human beings go for that one tree. But the tree that was also standing there, as you say, is the tree of life. And within this imagery of, of the garden, it seems that if you eat the tree of life, you live forever. And in order to prevent the fallen human beings, they could have chosen, it seems, to have eaten from that tree to begin with. It was open to them. But instead, they chose to eat from the one tree they were not allowed to. Now, Jesus, now God says, I, I will prevent you from eating the tree of life and, eat, and living forever. And I think within that imagery, that means that to live forever in a fallen state hmm. is not a blessing. It's a curse. And it's out of grace and goodness that God prevents human beings from living forever. And to be honest, we see that. Um, that death is a way, the fact that all human beings die is a way of limiting their evil. Yeah. I mean, as we look across the world and we see some terrible human dictators, we see human beings who are doing such evil, like, like Putin or like other dictators in, in, uh, elsewhere across the world. The one thing you know is that Putin's evil is going to come to an end because... Thank God, and I say that, you know, I, I, it's, it's a strange thing to say, isn't it? But, but, but I say it with almost painfully. Thank God Putin is going to die. Hmm. And when he dies, his evil is going to come to an end. And that's why death is actually a severe mercy. It, 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 in, in Christian thinking, it's not just, it, it's, it's a limitation of evil. And, and it underlines this kind of paradoxical approach that, you know, I know you've written about lots is from, from from the medical side, which is that we intuitively feel that death is an enemy and an, and an intruder in this world. And we grieve it, stealing people away from us. And as a doctor, you fight against it with all your might. And yet at the same time, it's not solely an evil. And it's not. And that, yes, the God's intention was for us to live forever, but we're not in inherently eternal in the way that he is you know the reason adam and eve would have lived forever in the garden is because they were eating of the tree i.e the metaphor there is that they are being sustained by god's eternalness and it is when but but that is not inherent to human beings that actually we are still created and it's only in communion with god when we are living right with him in his presence that we do um live forever that's right so I mean, just to sort of bring this into land, I, I think what we tried to just uh, scrape the surface of, really, of, of a very rich and profound understanding of evil in the scriptures, there's much more we could say about, um, you know, the, the way that the problem of innocent suffering is mm. grappled with in the book of Job, the, the lament, the whole concept of lament and so on so it's a but i think what i'm trying to illustrate is how rich and nuanced the christian understanding of evil is 
compared to this very simplistic and and naive understanding i think that you often find amongst scientists and technologists and i i personally think this is something that we as christians have to offer to this current debate going on in the tech world um you know i think that christians have a unique contribution to make in this debate about ai safety about social media about the appropriate use of technology of course everybody in a democratic society has a voice everybody has has a contribution to make but i do think the christian voice and our understanding of evil is one of the things that we can contribute to this debate yeah i mean what one way i've often heard it expressed is that christianity is both simultaneously more pessimistic and more optimistic about human nature and evil than our wider society is you know we're more pessimistic in that we don't believe evil is simply confined to a small handful of bad actors we believe it's kind of written into into all of our dna as it were spiritually speaking but we're also optimistic we don't just believe that you know people are bad and need to be restrained but we christianity also says the end of the story is that people will be redeemed you know like we talked about that god's god's desire yearning is to take out our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh to write the law onto our hearts so that you know in in his perfect new creation we won't need to be constrained like we were in babel with confusion about different languages or you know with a complex system of checks and balances in modern political constitutions because we will be redeemed and perfected and god will will replace our our brokenness with with an unmarred humanity. So we're both optimistic about the future and yet very realistic about the present. That's right. And, and so there's a fundamental paradox here that the, the Christian understanding of reality and the Christian understanding of humanity is fundamentally paradox. It's interesting, it goes, it was Pascal, the, the brilliant uh, scientist, mathematician, but also a, a Christian believer who was the, really the first to express this very very clearly he said that the way that we engage the way that we uh, can help people to see the reality of christianity is by actually focusing on the paradoxes it's it's the paradoxes that have the power and and i i see what he means you know i've often found that myself that that rather I, there's sometimes a, a temptation when one is talking about Christian faith to try and make it just seem very reasonable, very ordinary, very, very basic, very commonsensical, hmm. and and I think that's a mistake, because when we make Christianity commonsensical, we cut the nerve of its power. The whole point is it isn't commonsensical, it isn't simple, it isn't reasonable. It's it's profoundly paradoxical. And, and and the power of the faith is in the paradox. And and Pascal expressed it beautifully when he said that human beings are the glory and the shame of the universe. You know, then they're, they're not just ordinary; they are something incredibly wonderful and something incredibly broken and shameful. And it's in that very paradox that you see the power of this uh, Christian perspective. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a convenient place to to draw to a close. Um, thank you for listening. I hope you found that an interesting kind of whistle-stop tour. Obviously, we're, we've only really scratched the surface of, of the richness of Christian thinking around the fall and suffering and evil. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, do, do go on, read more, research more. It's really important. Good stuff. 
Um, but I hope that kind of helps um, lay a bit more of the framework. We'll we'll finish off our, our series at some point later this year or maybe early in the new year, looking at redemption, the next kind of phases of redemption and then finally new creation, recreation uh, later on. Um, but there's lots more um, uh, writing around, particularly around Christianity uh, on Dad's website. Lots of sermons he's done over the years are uploaded there. So do go to johnwyatt.com. Um, and as always, we're really interested in your in your questions, in your thoughts, your feedback, your disagreements. Please do get in touch with us. You can email us molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, we will speak to you next week with another episode. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.